0: Welcome, Michael, to this episode of Reflections, where we look back on a series of episodes on the topic of patriarchy and masculinity. We have episode 84 with Cleo Stiller on her book, Modern Manhood, conversations about the complicated world of being a good man. Episode 85, Jonathan Custodio on gender masculinity and listening to the Engendered podcast. Episode 86 with Jess Hill on her book, See What You Made Me Do, Power Control and Domestic Abuse, and finally episode 87 with Edgar Villanueva on decolonizing wealth. So let's start with Cleo Stiller on her book Modern Manhood. What were your thoughts about the conversations that we had around the men that she interviewed and the topics that they talked about and the reactions that they had?
1: I felt that this was something that I have heard of commonly before by other men. For example, the the feeling that they are going to be falsely accused. There's this, for some reason, some fear that they're going to be accused of sexual assault in the workplace. For some reason, women were going to use a false accusation against them uh, based on their behavior. And it seems to me that most people or most men that have, have stated the sentiment have been i would say pretty much older men above the age of 40.
0: so first of all you say over 40 is older i'm curious so that's like a let's see bait that's that's generation x and baby boomers and i think under 40 would be millennials and of course gen z so you feel like there's a correlation because i think some of the men that cleo interviewed she said they were a wide range and they included millennials, and there was a consistency around millennials under 40 men that is also being concerned about these issues.
1: And I'm sure there are. It's just maybe in the circle of people that I interact with, maybe that, that, that's been my personal experience. But I believe I've mentioned this in the podcast before, where I was at a training, and uh, we were talking about sexual harassment in the workplace. And there were two men specifically in that training that were terrified of being falsely accused. And um, one of them was a much older man, maybe in his 60s, 70s. He was the most vocal. And then there was another man who was much younger, but definitely above 40, who, who felt like he was going to be falsely accused. And he because of that, they, they felt like these new laws that were put into place were unfair.
0: I remember that conversation and I... I don't remember though if we talked about whether or not those two men that had that fear had the fear because they engaged in behavior that previously culturally was acceptable and now isn't acceptable. So it's a fear about having to change their behavior. Or was it based on the fact that they don't understand the concept of consent and boundaries and bodily autonomy. And so it's a lack of awareness of what the quote unquote rules are.
1: So with one of them, the older man, clearly, he, he even gave the example of, uh, well, what if I call somebody honey, like I call every every person, every uh, female co worker, honey, that doesn't make me Uh, a person who sexually he didn't see it as uh, a word that could possibly make somebody uncomfortable or calling a a woman by a name that's not theirs something that he wouldn't call a male Um, so I, I feel that in that case the older gentleman he was just used to different kind of behavior that now he feels that was completely okay in his time and now that things are changing he he feels threatened I believe Feels like at any moment. Uh, he, he even stated that there was somebody that accused him falsely. With the younger man, he was just, I didn't get the details of, of why he felt like that. I, I, when I tried to ask him, the facilitator stopped me.
0: So, what about the other topics that, that Cleo explores in her book? For example, beyond dating and work, the concept of friendships and the fact that. Men and women, heterosexual men and women can be friends, and how even amongst male and female friendships there was confusion.
1: Right. So this was mentioned even later on in the other pod in the other uh, episodes. Through my experience, it really depends. I, I think because society makes it so There are certain expectations like men should be a certain way and uh or men should expect like for example if a female friend of mine invited me to their house um there is this expectation that i have to that, that maybe that was an invitation for something else that that gave me the right or i felt entitled to some men feel entitled to to maybe touch them inappropriately or make a move that's that's inappropriate while with other men i feel it's much more clear and a lot of it is just the way society makes men feel entitled to this type of behavior. So it, it really depends on the person and how aware they are, and I think it's really important for men especially to be more aware of the situations um, that they are putting women through.
0: Well, it's not, it's not just that, but in terms of the fact that some men, apparently heterosexual men, have relationships with quote unquote female friends yet they have an ulterior motive that one day potentially convince them the female friend to date them right or to have sex with them and that they just can't believe that when women are genuinely friends with men maybe they want to genuinely just have a friend and not have someone with an ulterior motive
1: Right. Which reminds me of, uh, of that term that people use, the friend zone, like, oh, she put me in the friend zone instead of looking at it like, well, you're putting her in the relationship zone, right? That's, that's one of the things that really stood out to me from before. But on the flip side, one of the other things that caught my attention is how women, well, for me, and this is my personal experience, uh, when it comes to friendships with men, it's really hard for me to connect with them emotionally or talk to them about, something that i'm dealing with and it's it's a lot easier for me and this is my personal experience it's a lot easier for me to talk to a woman about my emotional issues and what i'm going through it's an interesting dynamic that i think society just puts on us
0: i think when cleo and i talked about this part of the challenge is that men actually benefit from their female friendships They benefit because they provide that emotional intimacy that they don't get necessarily from their male friendships because they don't seek to have those intimacies cultivated. On the other hand, they also don't expect to have them cultivated, and they're not expected to develop these skills from a young age as boys.
1: That's true, and even to this day, I myself have uh, my my male friendships that I have, I don't feel comfortable uh, expressing my emotions. So it's, it's, uh, it's something that I, I wish, that is something that I feel I have to work on.
0: Well, doesn't it begin with also expanding the kinds of men that you choose to befriend?
1: That's true. That's true. But I, I believe that the male who is open to speak about emotions is, is very rare. And there are some. I'm not saying that there aren't people and in, males in my life that don't like. But people like, let's say, my closest family, like my father. He's not the type of person that would be open to talking about their, his emotional feelings. And every time he feels uncomfortable, he 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 gets angry and he doesn't want to deal with it. So maybe that's part of the reason why I'm afraid to be vulnerable with another male. But it's much easier for me to be vulnerable with a female.
0: So it's like conditioning. You've you've been conditioned to withhold with other men.
1: And I feel like, based on what I read from their body language, like they don't want to have that conversation. Well, at least with the men that that, that um.
0: And they don't have the skill sets. To and they have don't have it.
1: yeah. They don't have the skill set to to be able to handle these issues. But again, I'm sure there are men who are open to that.
0: I think this poses a, an interesting question because. If you, in theory, continue to pursue emotional intimacy with women and not seek it out in men and help men develop those skills, then how do we get men to develop those skills? Who's going to help develop those skills in men who haven't already learned it as a child?
1: That's extremely difficult. I think
0: it's almost like activism, right? right? Like, what do you do with people who aren't informed about certain policies and how it might hurt them and yet they continue to vote against their own self-interest or the interest of our collective well-being. Right. What do you do about those people because it it might not impact you individually but it impacts us collectively as a society?
1: That's extremely difficult. I mean, the only thing that I could think of is again educating people. Like if you have a child And as they grow up, you instill these values in them. I think that that's one way of doing it, but that's a very small way of. And like you said, and when it comes to activism, you're trying to influence a lot of people and make them understand why the things that you're voicing are important. So it's it's not easy. It's also something that I have to notice in myself and understand that I'm also afraid of being vulnerable. And if I don't fight that instinct, or not instinct, that 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 feeling, then. I'm not going to be able to grow as a person either.
0: Right. So you're saying that you're feeling vulnerable when you seek a kind of behavior and response from another man who could potentially be a friend because they might reject you and they might reject your masculinity and make fun of you or whatever other social consequence might come out of that.
1: Maybe when I was younger. I don't think at this age I care about people questioning my masculinity. It's not something that I think about. I think when I was younger, probably, that would be true. So no, I'm not afraid of that because I am who I am and I'm, I'm now I'm much more secure than I was when I was younger. It's just, it, it's just I still find it difficult for me to, to be vulnerable. In, in general, I find it difficult for me to be vulnerable overall, right? But if I were to choose, I feel like a woman is more open to handling feelings and and listening.
0: What are your thoughts around the book, obviously, was something that Cleo wrote, where she gathered conversations with men that reached out to her and wanted to talk about these things. And she wrote it to provide men a space to talk about how things are changing gender. The push for gender equality is, in some ways, in some parts of our life, Creating greater accountability for abuse or abuse of power. And so that can be scary to people. And there's this, therefore, pushback by men, I think, individually and possibly collectively With men's against rights. that. Yeah. yeah. So, what do you think we can do to try to respond to that pushback in a way that can engage people and dispel them of the myths, like the myth of? False accusations being a real risk, or the myth that intimacy and seeking intimacy is going to challenge their manhood or status.
1: I think one of the solutions that I understood based on your conversation with her was being able to address it with open communication. The communication is key. So I feel like in our everyday lives, when we there's this uh, old saying where people say, you shouldn't talk about sex, politics, and religion because it's bad. It'll make the situation uncomfortable. I think it's, it's very bad that we don't talk about these subjects because it makes people ignorant about these subjects. And I think it's very important to talk about sex and religion and politics because it's, it, it's part of our everyday life. Sex is like eating. It's, it's something that's natural and what other beliefs people hold, it's important because it affects us, and politically it affects us in a way that is is very real and tangible. So I feel that when we do have open communication with as many people as possible, that we're open to listening, but at the same time we're open to uh, providing our point of view and the knowledge that we feel would benefit them. So every time I'm I'm speaking with a a group of students, for example, that I am uh, aware that may hold these false beliefs. I try to my very best to communicate them with them, but not just that. If with students, I, I encourage them to do their own research and really analyze the subject so they understand themselves and it's not just me trying to like, push some crazy agenda, right? But not only that, but when I speak to friends or other people, strangers that I meet and, and I eventually have maybe uh, closer relationships with, I encourage that type of dialogue or let's say i'm talking and i hear somebody use a derogatory term or it's something that it's important for me to bring it up and maybe people may be resistant initially but if there's constant contact and more communication essentially what i've seen is that people do come around and and uh, and feel like they learn something
0: i agree with that and i'm glad you brought up the sex politics and religion topics of being forbidden topics because for are verboten topics because I actually just saw a meme today about those very ideas that the reason that we don't have a functional working sort of society is because people have been told to avoid talking about those subjects and we haven't developed the tools and the literacy to talk about them in a respectful way that invites differences of opinion, and allows for space for learning. And I think this is a great segue into episode 85 with Jonathan Custodio, because he is someone who both of us have worked with in the past, who has had a really amazing journey of growth and evolution that gives me hope that anybody can change.
1: Absolutely. When I saw his name, I was like, Oh, my God, it's Jonathan. I can't (laughs) believe that. He's he's in the podcast. And um, I was excited about this episode more than most. Uh, It's someone that I know, I, I feel like I got to know him even better through the, the conversation that you had with him, and how he explained how he grew up, where he came from, and his background and how he had to deal with so much. In many ways, I feel I identified with him as, as, as a younger person. He explained how he had that, that he grew up mostly with males and his mother was the, the female minority and that she upheld some of these uh, beliefs, like uh, fighting violence with violence. And, and it's something that's, that's actually pretty common in not just Dominican culture, but in Hispanic culture in general. So... Um, I
0: think so, patriarchal
1: culture. Patriarchal culture to, to all of us, but I agree. It's just, so I saw that. Although I grew up with a little, it was more female dominated. I was, my father was actually not always working and everything. So it was, it, it was a little bit different. And I grew up with a sister and female cousins and my, it, it was a little bit different. But again, it's the same ideals that are held up in, in, both, in, both, uh, in, in both cases. Yeah, I, I listened to him. I, one of the things that he mentioned Was back in the day being called a derogatory terms for gay. uh, It it was like the worst thing that somebody could be called, like when their masculinity is questioned. And it's something that I I remember thinking back in the day yeah, that was actually the worst thing that could possibly be called. And you don't want to be that. So you want to defend yourself. Now, like earlier in the conversation that we just had, my masculinity is not something that I'm here to defend. And it's like, I I, I really don't care if I'm called uh, anything. It's just, I feel like I have grown as a person.
0: It's clear to me, is it clear to you too, that Jonathan has really matured?
1: Absolutely. I mean, he mentioned, I mean, that's why I mentioned this, right? Because it's something that he looks back on that. And I feel like I grew in the same way that he did. But he yes, he definitely has matured since. Um, childhood.
0: And and wouldn't you say, I mean, that he has such an awareness of his own journey and the the factors that contributed to e- each of the main, you know, sort of impetus for, or catalysts for, for growth for him. And I'm wondering, like, I keep getting back to this question, what is the formula for helping to accelerate that? Is there some way that we can help someone not have to go through their mistakes and their and just get to a place of maturity and understanding faster without maybe the pain and suffering that they themselves might experience or inflict on others.
1: I think everybody's different and it's very hard to say that there's one formula for everything. But I think it's like learning a new language where the fastest way is to be exposed and be placed in a in a location where you're you you only have the choice of learning. Uh, the language. So I feel like if you're exposed to uh, this knowledge, it's just going to change who you are as a person. So I feel as an adult, I've surrounded myself around people that, that are open to learning, that are open to, to understanding these issues and place myself in locations where I feel like I could learn something and, and just open up my mind a little bit more. Some of us, it's, some of us seek this knowledge out. And unfortunately, some people Prefer or feel safer in their bubbles. So we can't change everybody, and it's, it's disheartening in some cases, but I, I feel that the more we talk about it and the more we open we are to communicating, I feel like slowly I think things will change.
0: Well, I, I mean, one of the biggest things that we want to change, obviously, is to the next episode, 86 with Jess Hill on her book, See What You Made Me Do, Power Control and Domestic Abuse, is this manifestation of patriarchy and masculinity in our relationships, in our systems, and the way it shows up in our workplaces, in you know, our different institutions that also continue to police our behaviors and reinforce men's entitlement to power. Power over others, women and of other men.
1: Right. What I noticed about this episode, and also Jonathan Castillo is also into journalism, is the fact that a person, a journalist, is, is their job is pretty difficult. Um, it's not something that everybody is going to gravitate towards. And I feel like the people who do get into this line of work, many of them, they want to advocate for something. And um, I believe she is one person. And it reminded me of this. Episode of the moth that I was listening to, and I to this episode, and it, there was this man named uh, Jerry Mitchell, who was a journalist. Through his help and his e- expose, he was able to get uh, Byron della back 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 with. He was the person who murdered uh, Medgar Evers in 1963, and he never received justice until he re- made a report on him. And he, he exposed the KKK and the leaders of the KKK. So it's not just him, but because of his reporting, it led to a whole bunch of arrests, which he mentioned in his, uh, in his moth story that his wife was absolutely terrified that he was doing this because he... By exposing this, he got several death threats, and it was just not just the life of him, but his, his entire family that was exposed. So being a journalist takes bravery, and it takes passion, and it takes something that I feel many of us don't have. I, I commend them. Not all journalists are like this, and some journalists do report in, in, in very negative ways, but I think it's important for us to take the time to recognize the people who are advocating for worthy causes.
0: Yeah, I mean, Jonathan, you know, to your point, Jonathan, as a journalist, talked about how he came to this role professionally because he wanted to lift up voices in his community and shine a light on them, whether it's the Latino community or Bronx or financially, economically disenfranchised communities. I actually happen to coincidentally have heard that moth episode as well, And I thought I was very impressed by it. And going back to Jess, it's not just the sort of impact isn't just like death threats, isn't like just a finite kind of thing, you know, where people have to make choices around, should I continue or should I not? Because there's this fork at the road and it might harm my family or put myself at risk. There's also, if they choose to continue to be, journalists and cover issues of violence or violence against women where perpetrators might come after them uh, or they might experience vicarious trauma and so there's this ongoing suffering that they're voluntarily subjecting themselves to that they have to manage and so they also deserve commendation for that because without these journalists sharing stories like Jess does about the family court system in Australia, which has the same problems and the same systemic biases that we see in the U.S. and in the U.K. and in New Zealand and all across the globe. And the problems against, you know, violence against women and these tactics that are being used that are universally being ignored and in in some ways enabled. Absolutely. It's without them. We wouldn't have this amazing book that she wrote, which I hope you're going to read.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, Yes, I have have a list of books, but this is definitely one of them. One of the things that she mentioned in the conversation with you is how the framing uh, is really important. So one of the things that she mentioned was um, instead of saying X amount of women were killed it were killed uh it, it would be more accurate to center it around the perpetrator right so you say 3,000 men killed X amount of women or like like this is it, it, it's more impactful and she said that even when she was writing this that it sounded uncomfortable but it's 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 a lot more impactful and when you read some of the headlines they seem so misleading and in the past you've talked about this before how a headline really can put the article into perspective, and sort of influence the, per- the reader's opinion based on how it's written.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a really good point that you made that Jess said, even as a journalist, when she redirected the agency to the perpetrators, it felt uncomfortable because we're, we're so used to not holding perpetrators accountable, that just shifting language has this visceral impact on us.
1: Absolutely. And it's, I agree, it does sound completely different when you say that. But it's the truth. And I think it it will help. It'll help us understand better how to address these issues.
0: Well, what did you think about Jess's reference? It's in the book in great detail, but I brought up Albert Biederman's chart of coercion, and the eight ways in which Uh, This was in regard to American prisoners of war in the Korean War and how there's the exact same tactics that are being used by perpetrators in a coercive controlling relationship.
1: Right, and that's why it's so important for us to address the issues of coercive control and how making it illegal.
0: Yeah, because it reminded me of my conversation with Leda Hong Fincher about Chinese feminists, that there's this state authoritarian set of tactics where individuals who are detained are isolated and intimidated and gaslit in so many different ways. And they're put into a situation where their family and their community and network is also complicit in trying to get them to agree to changing their behavior, and which in the case of the Chinese feminists was not going against and speaking out against the government.
1: And ultimately... I understand how their their loved ones have good intentions because they want the safety of the advocates. But it's just difficult because you're looking at everyone else and how it's affecting and the good that you're doing by speaking out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to discourage listeners, but we are addressing in so many different ways, whether you're a journalist or you're a family member or part of someone's network. Anybody who speaks out against abuse or abuse of power there's this risk. There's going to be collateral damage to their community.
1: Uh, yes, exactly. So it's.
0: But that doesn't make it okay for us to to not speak out. That, right. Because if we collectively speak out, if every one of us speaks out and becomes normalized, then we outnumber those who we're going to be speaking out against, and we have collective power.
1: It's kind of like that argument where people say, well, I'm not going to vote because my vote's not going to count, right? If everybody had that, that same thought, like, well, uh, my vote's not going to count, and the next person says, yeah, my vote's not going to count, yes, then that, that, that kind of thinking will lead to votes not really counting. It's, it, it's, it's important for us to be involved in the political process. So I think that's, that's, that's similar in that way.
0: Mm, I, yeah, that's a really good analogy. What about When Jess and I talked about Ferraro and Johnson's list of six ways in which women rationalize their abuse in order to stay in their relationships. And some of the examples that Ferraro and Johnson gave was blaming themselves or wanting to fix the abuser and thinking that they could fix the abuser, thinking that the abuser was fixable.
1: Right. I remember. It's unfortunate that um, they use these excuses, but I think if all of them are addressed, that's why communication is is extremely important. And you're taking a look at the bigger picture, that education should be able to hopefully enlighten these victims and hopefully see that some of these excuses are, are basically reinforcing the abusers' tactics and control over them.
0: And I'm really happy that in the book, Jess talked about different models of success that we don't really have in large scale in the US here. So the model of women's police stations that are apparently pretty widespread in the global South, including Brazil and Argentina and India, where female police officers help women leave abusive relationships, and they're there to serve the women. They're right. not there to necessarily apply the law. So if the women who are being abused say they need to get the abuser out of the house or they need to just have so that they can have some time to just emotionally ground themselves right. and have a respite, um, that they don't want the abuser to be arrested uh, or they you know, need mental health support, that they're able to get that And there's no pressure for the criminal justice system to come down hard and force the victim and survivor to take a particular path that they may not be ready for.
1: Right, which is in contrast to what you mentioned, how over here in the U.S., some of the uh, laws are there to somehow help the abuser. Instead of addressing the woman's issues, right? So uh, helping them out with their uh, financial situation by helping them find a job and, and, and addressing, like, hopefully stopping the abuser by helping them because they're abusing them for other reasons instead of, like, making sure that you're holding the abuser accountable. So it's in contrast to that
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think what you're talking about is I don't remember the actual episode we talked about this. I think it was our reflections on the criminal justice system and my interview with Richie Rosita, teaching feminism to reduce recidivism. Mm -hmm. Richie and I had talked about restorative justice being used as a modality that supposedly victims and survivors are asking for only because they're being presented it as an option, right? So in New York City, for example, the excuse that victims use to rationalize their abuse, according to Ferraro and Johnson in Justice Book, is being used to justify providing them services. So the excuse is, I want to fix my abuser. And rather than seeing that as a rationalization, DV agencies are saying, okay, well, survivors want to fix their abuser, so let's provide services to help the abuser be fixed. Let's provide him skill building and job training because abuse tends to go up and be correlated with unemployment and threats to his masculinity. And so if he's going to have more job skills and employment opportunities, maybe he will abuse less. So rather uh, than focus on the survivor, let's focus on the abuser.
1: Right, which I feel in many ways may have the opposite effect because they'll have more power and more money and more control.
0: Yeah, it's not, it's not actually liberating women and providing women the tools to uplift themselves right. out of poverty or to be able to make conscious free choice.
1: Right, exactly. So you, you want to make sure that women have some semblance of control as, as opposed to um, helping out the, the, the person who already has the power.
0: And this actually is the reason why I was so excited to read about the North Point, North Carolina focused deterrence model, because it actually... Is real transformative justice or restorative justice. It's not restorative justice in the way that it's being defined across the country now, where there's this opportunity or willingness or even expectation for survivors to forgive their abusers, for abusers to be coming to the table and having their abuse and uh, history of abuse or trauma be used as a justification for not holding them accountable. And so what this, what I call authentic transformative justice approach is, in focused deterrence, is people in the system, whether it's the police officers, the faith community leaders, law enforcement, everybody comes together, there's a row of in a common space where perpetrators are sitting and the community is there and the audience and the people who have authority in the system, like the police officers, the FBI, etc., they are there to say to the perpetrators, you've done this in the past, you've committed X crime, you've hurt, you've abused, you've controlled, it's not okay. We don't want you to continue to do it. We respect and acknowledge that you have a choice and you do it out of free choice, Mm -hmm. not because of mental illness, not because of past trauma, but because you choose to do so. And we also respect that you have the choice not to do so. And so we will give you the benefit of the doubt. If you choose to do so, again, we're going to throw the book at you and as Jess referred to the Al Capone model, use other means within the system, other crimes that you may have committed, other
1: ways of getting way, justice. Other ways of
0: getting justice to put you back in jail. And it's very effective. She has the numbers in her book. Um, and I think that's actually the way to go.
1: For now, this is the. One of the few effective methods that seem to be viable, yes.
0: Yeah. Let's turn to the last episode, Edgar Villanueva on decolonizing wealth. He's a globally recognized expert in social justice philanthropy and looks at the concept of wealth and wealth generation and value creation as something that is intrinsically colonialist in nature, and and yet offers the opportunity that wealth and money can not just be the source of pain, but also the source of healing.
1: You started off the quote with, the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house.
0: Yeah, the Audre Lorde quote that that Edgar shared. And that's actually something that is often put to activists when we're engaging in social justice struggles if the house itself is problematic, should we be using the tools to dismantle them? Or should we be forgetting about the house and creating a new house, just throwing, burning the house down and building a new house?
1: Which Edgar would argue that no, we can use money in order to uh, address some of these issues. It's interesting, because you come up with Questions about ethics, like uh, like is it right? Is it ethical to be a millionaire? Is it, it, is, it is it something that is possible despite the fa- the obvious implications of, of how having money is it, it does cause pain.
0: Well, causes not necessarily pain, but it reinforces unequal power structures that then lead to outcomes that are painful, like poverty and racial injustice and gender inequality and sex discrimination in the workplace, etc.
1: Right. And how, just because of the dynamics of of how uh, capitalism works, those with power tend to have money and tend to have more of the ability to use those tools, right? To make more money. To make more money and, and again maintain that, the, the, the status quo. So I do think it's something that, that's very difficult, but there are people that are using some of the money to, to help victims and build a, a different system, I guess.
0: So you, you agree that you think money can be used for healing. And what about your thoughts around billionaires? It was not millionaires, it was billionaires. Oh, billionaires. Do you think it's ethical for a system to create billionaires? And that for someone, for such so few people in the world, to be able to extract wealth out of the backs of the laborers and accumulate it and not distribute it.
1: Because I think the only way to be able to become a millionaire is through hoarding money, is through, uh, like you said, use to get the money off of the hard labor of others. And I, I personally don't think it's ethical. People, like when you guys were talking about it, I thought of like Bloomberg and how he's using all, the, all this money, millions and millions of dollars to campaign for himself, while I feel that money could be used in a more beneficial way.
0: Well, I just also want to say, not just Bloomberg, but also Tom Steyer, Sti- Tom right? Yes. Both of them are billionaires who, Bloomberg in particular, in the last Democratic debate, that, that he shouldn't be able to use his money to maintain his status in the race. Right. Whereas other people like Kamala Harris or Cory Booker dropped out of the race and Julian Castro because they weren't able to raise enough money. And yet someone you know, who starts late and wanted to jump in is able to still stay and have a voice. And is it fair that he should even have a voice well, by buying his way into it?
1: Right, and that's the thing. He he basically did buy himself into it through through the ads that he put all over the place, and it's. And it's the people that support him, the people that think, well, you know, he's using he's using his money and this is the only way to get rid of Trump, or you have to fight fire with fire because Trump is so rich and this guy is actually rich, then uh, Trump is afraid of him. I think that these this is the narrative that people build up in order to justify his position as a, a candidate in this race. I think people in general take a look at a person that has money and power and they feel, well, if they have money in power, then this must be a smart person that could manage, that could manage the country well. I, I think that's how Donald Trump got in power. And I think that's part of the narrative. That's just one of the reasons I think Donald Trump...
0: Right. So people don't recognize that people can amass wealth by cheating. That the system itself, or maybe they don't even have to cheat, that the system itself actually allows for legalized cheating. And exploitation of the little person, the everyday person, and that in its, of itself is unethical. Like corporations not paying taxes,
1: right? Like Amazon, how no matter how much money they make, they didn't have to pay taxes. So that's one of the things that I feel people aren't informed, and that's when they're not involved in the political process, and they don't. Uh, I, I feel like if they look into this, then they'll they would agree with us, right? So it's something that it's important for people to become involved in and and understand. So yeah, so to answer your question, I do believe that it is unethical to become, to be a billionaire.
0: What are your thoughts around this quote by Hannah Arendt, the German philosopher who wrote the book, One of Many, Origins of Totalitarianism? Mm -hmm. And she wrote... Only the unlimited accumulation of power could bring about the unlimited accumulation of capital. So that power and money go hand in hand. And accumulation of money and wealth, or hoarding of that, leading to billionaires becoming in existence, also comes with it, by default, their unlimited accumulation of power. And so, money represents power. And power that continues to grow through money is in and it of itself power over what just said. Power over as a function of patriarchy, as a definition of patriarchy, men's entitlement to power is the problem and is the source of exploitation, sexual exploitation, sexual discrimination, sexual violence.
1: It seems like that's, I guess, a feature of capitalism. Just It's just how capitalism works and that's a result of it. And and one of the things that you mentioned was how uh, women, white women who have some sort of power because they are white and they have that connection to that power, they uphold the system because they don't wanna lose that power even though they're being disenfranchised in other ways, namely being a woman. So I think it's very unfortunate and I think that has to be something that has to be addressed. and I guess one way that Edgar is mentioning uh, about how to address it is by uh, using money to bring awareness to, it, to this.
0: Right. So you're talking about some of his policy suggestions around having different tax structures, obviously, so, so money isn't accumulated in the same way uh, to the same people, but also policies around foundations, no longer having a cap on foundations, no more foundations as a tax loophole for the rich no more foundations newly created because the concept of the wealthy deciding how to distribute their wealth and what is worthy of being funded doesn't provide agency to the communities that are receiving that money and so there should be potentially dissolution of the foundations that are in existence right those are some of his ideas there were a lot more policy suggestions he had but what do you think about some of those ideas?
1: I feel that there are so many hurdles. I mean, yes, changing the tax laws to make sure that um, wealth can't be accumulated in such obscene amounts it is a great idea. It's just the way power works right now is the, the more money you have, the easier you can influence and lobby politicians to prevent a law like that from ever coming about, right?
0: Yeah, so how, it's like a catch-22. Right. How do we get laws to be passed when the people who control those who pass the laws and vote on those laws are going to prevent it from happening?
1: Right. So I think, and one of the ways that I see it is if, if people are involved, a lot of people are involved in the political process and you can support candidates who want to take money out of politics or, or, or if there's maybe some way of doing that, I think that, that there may be some movement towards change in that sense.
0: Well, what about like in Europe, where you have so many people, masses coming together from, from different job sectors, if the mass transit stops, you know, and transit workers decide to go on a strike, then everything shuts down, and the government or whomever has to give in to the demands of those unions.
1: So basically... It, it comes back down to the beginning of the question that we had for this episode. Do you burn down the entire house or do you use the tools to try to uh, alleviate the situation? If everybody was able to collectively do that, yes, absolutely, because the, the power comes from the people. I, if, if people get together and strike, I mean, I don't remember where I read this, but I believe somewhere at uh, some point in our history, the sanitation workers decided to go on strike and they made huge change instantly. Like it's something that has immediate effects. And and again, because the sanitation workers themselves got together and decided to do this, I, I do think that's a very viable option. It's just getting the movement to happen is where the work is at.
0: Yeah, and I think, so that's a great point. If the impact is gonna be really negative and we all suffer, which if there's no garbage pickup and sanitation workers are on strike, then we're going to collectively it's going to be harder to be mobile and physically commute to school and to work or it might be more unpleasant or there's greater risk of disease and disease infection right, right. and transmission um on the other hand we don't have the mechanism to go on strike in this country because we see the failure of unions to really reach people and educate people about their benefits. We also see the dismantling of unions where we used to have, I think 30 or 40 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, we used to have more than 50% of people in certain sectors as members of unions. Now it's less than a third. Mm -hmm. And so that's maybe the first step that we can take is educating people about what kinds of protections they can use that are still in existence in various systems like unions and make sure that they're voting for those policies and supporting the unions so that they can continue to exist and then retaking and reclaiming the power that unions have to negotiate for better working conditions for labor.
1: Right, and I believe there are many efforts by powerful people to try to dismantle unions and so it's it's again we're still dealing with politics and money and politics and how how it has such a negative impact on us because of the way capitalism enables it so i, I again education is important and people coming together i think there are groups of people and that, that are trying to make change and i feel that people should, again, that's one solution, being involved in the political process but, uh, uh, and being able to speak and advocate for um, these changes.
0: This reminds me of the conversation that we had with C.B. Harquill on her book, Feminism, a key idea for business and society, and subsequently the conversations we had with Susan Basterfield and Gina stevens Rembi on Inspiral and how Inspiral is building a feminist business ecosystem. And similarly with CV, she talks about implementing feminist values in business and infusing businesses with values from the beginning, or at least transforming them, you know, those who are already in existence into more equitable institutions with structures and policies that invite diversity, that invite inclusion, that invite transparency, that
1: enable a uh, flexibility for different people to be served to meet their needs within the company. I think that that was a, a key component that I, I found really, really uh, helpful and, and enticing for that model.
0: Yeah. So basically, this, we come full circle to this idea that patriarchy and the negative effects of masculinity as it shows up in our workspaces, in our relationships, if we become aware of these aspects, we can do better and differently. As parents, we can do better and differently as employers and business leaders. Mm-hmm. We can do better and differently as individuals and in relationships, having conversations with other people.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we, again, we do have so many hurdles and uh, one of the things that even Edgar mentioned was that while feminist values and, and women have more power, there's an increase in violence towards women, and that's just another hurdle of patriarchy that uh, that has to be addressed. And it's not an easy road, but if we're if we're not uh, feeling resistance, then then we're not going in the right direction.
0: Yeah, that's right. We're, it's only progress that creates backlash, so we have to just continue with the fight. Absolutely. Thank you Michael, until next time. Thank you Terry. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.